You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Larry Lieber. And you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Amazing Spider-Man Episode 3B covering a period of of The Amazing Spider-Man from 1967. This is also the second half of our look through the Marvel Epic Collection, Spider-Man Epic Collection, Volume 3, Spider-Man No More. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your co-host, Frank Martini. And Frank, what what issues are we talking about in today's episode? Uh, So today we are going to cover issue 47 to 52 of Amazing Spider-Man. We will be talking about Annual 4 and Not Run Egg issue 2. And this is a really cool period for Spider-Man. As I was reading this kind of from the start to finish, uh, I'm, I'm quite amazed at the at how much Romita changes throughout the course of this book. We talked about it in the last episode how he was kind mm-hmm. of a Ditko clone. He was trying to do a lot of of his own style to to mimic what Ditko was doing. But by the time we get to the end of this book, man, a lot of that has changed. The the, the drawings are way more open and way bigger. That he uses fewer panels. He's he's getting away from the Ditko you know nine panel grid and stuff. And then Stan's dialogue kind of reflects that. He is uh, not scripting as much. There are definitely pages where he over scripts and we can we'll point those out throughout this episode but mm. but there are times when he just lets the action speak for itself as well it's kind of cool yeah the the main thing i think is that uh romita said that um when he got on the book he always thought that ditko would come back anytime so he wanted to give the impression that the, the, the style remained in the, the, the Ditko uh, spirit and vein, so that when he would return, the, the change would be not that impacting for people. Because he, he felt that there was no way that Ditko would leave uh, one of the most popular books in the Marvel Universe back then. But I think that uh, once he realized that Ditko would not return, uh, he started doing more of his uh, spirit, bringing more of his spirit and of his experience on both romance comics and uh, and the stuff he had learned from the Daredevil nine or ten issue run he had. So he really brought the best of both worlds, I think, and uh, it starts to show in the, in this volume once again. Since in this volume we have the majority of the the, the pencil is done uh, by, by Romita himself, so we don't get. Like we will get in the next volume, uh, only layout and then finishing by someone else, or even in the volume right after, so volume five, you have less Romita work because you have John Buscema f- filling in and then Gil Kane. So really, this volume, so volume three and volume uh, seven, so Goblins that stand, is really the best you can get from from Romita. 
I really feel like you can tell that he is uh, really crafting his own style here. And yeah, he started uh, doing all this romance stuff, uh, which he was good at. But I think the blend between the romance and the action uh, really suits him well. He seems to quite enjoy it. And I, and I also think that there's this cultural shift that's happening in comics just in general at this time where the, the old style of comics, if you look at the golden age of Marvel going through, this, through the 50s and even the early 60s here, um, where they try to cram as much as they can into one page, we're now seeing with the rise of people like, you know, Jim Steranko and Neil Adams and stuff and now and John Romita too, where they are... Uh, where they're they're changing the way panel layouts work. They're changing the way that stories are told through the action rather than uh, with more emphasis on the dialogue. And and, and this is going to change comics from now on going through the 70s and, you know, leading into today. Um, and Romita's playing a role in that, and you, we can see that forming in these issues here. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and also, I think it's the, the main marker of the, of the Marvel Universe back then was Kirby. And uh, Kirby's style has uh, evolved a lot a couple of years before, you know, when he reached uh, Fantastic Four, 45 to 50. Really, that's the moment. And, and Thor at the same time also changed dramatically. So with less panel per, per page, more splash pages, mixing genres uh, when the, 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 with some uh, Xeroxes put on the pages and then applying drawing and stuff. So really, it was a moment of change. And uh, uh, for me, that's really the moment when the, the, the Marvel Universe is, uh, exploded. And once again, 66 and 67 is the moment when the music was booming, you know, with the, the, the best Beatles and Rolling Stones uh, albums published around those times. Uh, incredible music popping up everywhere. Art being more preeminent and uh, with pop art especially. Fashion, the Batman TV show, all that at the same time. The Avengers TV show in the UK as well. Really something which completely reshaped the, the cultural world. So it makes sense that uh, comic books were also following that trend. Wow, yeah, what a what an amazing time for the arts is this the mid sixties here. It's just incredible to think about all of that all together. Uh, and you can see it reflected here too, because we have Romita uh, definitely, uh, you know, sloughing off all of the the nineteen fifties kind of style that Ditko was doing through his run, and the, the 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 characters are way more up to date. They're speaking the ridiculous lingo. Um, they're, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just this this era is definitely reflected in this time. It kind of dates it a little bit, but at the same time, it's it's nice to read. Yeah, because the the it, the dialogue is very very tough to follow for someone who's not who wasn't born at that time. I think <laughs> yeah, or and not in that uh, in that country as well, which is my case. And, and it's very dated, and I don't I don't think that. Comics would be that dated in terms of language in the 70s or in the 80s. Visually speaking, they, they become very dated in the 90s because you see this visual change, yeah. but not in the, in the dialogue, I think. And uh, here it's very specific of that era and more specific, I think, to Spider-Man because the Avengers, uh, the, 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 the Fantastic Four, they were less into that romance kind of thing and the civilian aspect, the day-to-day the, the -day right. life. Yeah. less visible in Avengers and, uh, and in Fantastic Four. The X-Men were 
a bit in that vein because they were supposed to be teenagers and so on and so forth, but they weren't hip, if I may use that word. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I think it was where it, where it was happening was Spider-Man. And we will see further afterwards that when we, were, we would be talking about uh, protests, drugs, and so on and so forth, all that takes place in Spider-Man, which ties with what Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams were doing uh, in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, at DC Comics, I think. Right. Yeah, and if you think about all of the other characters in the Marvel Universe, they're really adults. Uh, and so they're not going to be uh, into the scene, into the modern scene as much as, as Spider-Man and his group of friends. Like, you know, Daredevil is a lawyer. So all of his civilian scenes are lawyer scenes. He's dressed in a suit. Thor is a mythical character. That doesn't count. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Tony Stark is an industrialist. Like, he's a businessman as well. So he's always seen in a suit as well. Um, this is really kind of the only place we're going to see the reflection of the era so heavily influencing the book. Yeah, and uh, actually Spider-Man is the only teenager that, uh, well, with the X-Men, but that went successful and and going all over the place because there was no clear direction on the book. So that that really made the book be the, 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 the clear focus of the and the moment when the 60s were there, well, it exploded for teenagers because that's what was happening in real life as well. And teenagers became uh, suddenly became a, a, a market domain. And that, that's the moment when young people really started to interest uh, marketing and advertising because they were started uh, being consumers because the, the, everything was booming. So all those guys born right after the war, they were suddenly at the center of everything or a lot of things. Uh, and it's clearly reflected here. That's probably why Spider-Man was catapulted to its stardom as it was, because mm. being the only yeah. book that reflected teenage culture, and like all of these comic books were marketed and geared toward teenagers, but this is the only one where the teenagers would see themselves accurately or I, I don't know, I, I'm assuming accurately <laughs> depicted in the pages. Yeah, I, I think that's that. And uh, at least you can you, you can project yourself in, in Peter Parker uh, because he had trouble and he was not, he, he was never a, a proper, a true winner. There was always something, you know, there was always a shadow somewhere. Yeah. So I think people could relate to that. Okay, well, how do other people relate to it? I asked on Facebook uh, for a bunch of comments here, and we have uh, we have some comments. Let's see what we have here. On Twitter, Stefan says, has some great Spider-Man stories, an epic introduction to Mary Jane, and I love when John Romita takes over. My dad had comics from this era, and those made me love the character. I just wish I could get a reprint because I don't want to shell out $80 for it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, as of this time, as of this recording, this volume is currently out of print and the people who are uh, selling it on the secondary market have jacked up the prices. Um, so I encourage everybody, don't don't pay those secondary market prices. Uh, I'm sure you can lo- look around and see if you can find a copy at a comic book store or something if you do some, some hunting or just be patient. This being such a formative volume for Spider-Man, it's bound to be reprinted. Uh, I can't see them not reprinting this one. Yeah, me too. I, uh, and I definitely think that the first seven volumes of Spider-Man are the best you can, probably some of the best you can get, uh, and they should remain in print yep. one way or another. John says this is a great volume, goes hand in hand with the 1967 cartoon. 
I just wish they had chosen a more representative cover instead of annual number three. Yeah, well, I think that one of the ideas that Marvel has for this collection is to have as many characters and uh, and guests you can get for 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 the covers. So the Avengers make sense uh, in that vein, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they they definitely favor the covers that feature other Marvel characters. So this is kind of the only option if they want to go in that direction. They also don't really want to use covers. I mean, there are exceptions like Fantastic Four Volume 3, but they don't usually use covers that are featured on other collections. Um, so that kind of rules out a lot of the more popular covers like 39 and 40 mm, yeah, and, sure. and number 50. Yeah. Which was the cover of the Masterworks volume in which it was reprinted. So it was already used before. Right. Yeah. And I, that cover art is actually a bonus feature in this book at the end of this book. Mm. Uh, so one other note about John's comment here. I found a Spotify playlist that is called Spider-Man 67. And it features all of the music cues from the from the cartoon series. Uh, all of the the score wasn't written specifically for that show. They used a music library for that for that old cartoon. And the first two seasons used one library. And then when the production moved over to a different company for the third season, they used a different library. And so this playlist has all of the music cues from the third season. And so what I what I would do is I would put it on while I read these books. And it, nice. it was really good. It was quite a great experience. It made me feel like I was uh, watching the cartoon again, um, only with better artwork, because that cartoon was uh, pretty abysmal in terms of the art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, that, that that cartoon was the was iconic for oh yeah for, for, for the time, and you know it was pub, uh, it was on the air in France in nineteen seventy seven. Oh, okay. So uh, so that was my introduction to, to Spider Man at the time uh, because it was I don't know why it took so, so long to arrive in France, but when it did, it was huge. I mean, there was a, a peak of Spider Man mania in France. Um, you had two episodes every month of, in the French edition, so that was great. And the strip, also by Romita and Lee, was in the TV guide, the French TV guide. So all of Spider-Man was everywhere, and I was four, and I was that, that, that's the moment when Spider-Man <laughs> was everything for me. So yeah, nice. I, I, I can. I definitely like this this cartoon, even though it's corny. Yeah, oh for sure, I like it too. Uh, okay, so on Facebook, we got a bunch of comments here. A few quick hits. Christopher says, John Romita Sr. is the greatest Spider-Man artist of all time. And he puts a little goat emoji. Uh, Steve says, Romita, Romita, Romita all the way. And Arturo says, Romita Sr. is my fa favorite Spidey penciler. So I think we're sensing a theme here. Uh, here are mm. some longer comments. Jamie says, probably the best Spider-Man run, Romita full pencils, and Lee writing. Spider-Man demonstrates his two, true character by not joining the Avengers at the expense of, the, of Bruce Banner. And man, now that I think about it, Spider-Man took down the Hulk. There's first Mary Jane, huh? Green Goblin reveal, the Kingpin, and possibly the greatest story, Spider-Man No More. That cover is iconic. Yeah, for sure. A good summary of the of that uh, of that collection. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you break it down like that, it's like yeah, it's just hit after hit. Mm. Uh, Lewis says a really great volume, big reveal for Green Goblin, great stuff with Craven, the new Vulture, Blackie Drago, uh, first appearances of the Shocker, the Kingpin. Smiling Stan and Jazzy John wrote some of the best comics ever in this volume, the pinnacle of Spider-Man probably. 
And I know that's tall talk, but man, it has everything that a Spider-Man, a Spider-Man fan could want. And lest I forget, it also has the return of the Lizard, only his second appearance this far. Yeah. And Phil says Spider-Man Annual Three is the only time I can remember that the Avengers required a candidate for membership uh, undergo a formal test. Usually, they just had a probationary period. Spider-Man just had to be different. Yeah, because he, he wouldn't join. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Matthew says, in, in my opinion, this is really where the Peter Parker stories got interesting. I found myself skipping through the Spider-Man action just to get back to the soap opera. I, I think that's a very, very truthful comment because that's exactly, uh, you know, I'm starting to read uh, again uh, volume four and I'm almost skipping the, the, the action parts because the, the, the thing with Gwen Stacy and uh, Mary Jane and so on, it, it's not more interesting, but it's what brings, makes the action going on every uh, every month when you sometimes you get just a villain of the month and it's not that interesting. So yeah, I can uh, definitely can relate. It's kind of how I read comics in general is I kind of zip through the action because, you know, it's hard to make action sequences be different or unique. They're kind of almost all the same. Same with the Marvel movies. I find that it's like, come on, let's get back to the plot, right? And Tom mm. DeFalco has a famous saying. He says, people come for the fights, but they stay for the soap opera. And I think that's true. Yeah, because the, the, when, you, when you read the comments... Okay, the the, ventures, the, the villains uh, get mentioned, but uh, uh, not as much as uh, MJ or Gwen and the romance aspects, and obviously the Romita art. Uh, because if you zoom out of what we we read, what we what you will remember from this volume is really the time when it's the time when Peter went out of this bookworm era from the Ditko run yep. um, into a more social character and uh, having the gang around him and so on and so forth. So it's really the socializing era time for him. And that's what I remember when I see those um, this book. You know, what I have in mind is really this this scene in uh, in issue forty, I don't know which in which issue uh, MJ is introduced to the rest of the cast, uh, and they are all hanging. Yes, it's uh, issue forty four, page ten, when they are all hanging out at the coffee bean. You know, that's what I remember when I think of this era. Right. Yeah. Totally. Uh, one final comment from Will. He says, this is the run that gave us the Spider-Man we know today. Ditko and Lee's Spider-Man was popular, but Romita and Lee are the ones who sent Spider-Man off into the stratosphere of popularity. Plus, we get the first actual appearance of Mary Jane, who will always be Peter's better half to me. As good as the soap opera part gets, the only weakness Romita and Lee have were creating the A-list villains that Ditko and Lee did. Aside from the Kingpin, there are no new A-list villains in this run. Yeah, it's true. And I don't think that you need to have new A-list villains because there are so many good villains that Ditko created that you're, you're going to want to bring back. And if you cycle through all of them, you just don't have time to fit in new villains. So yeah, there are a few of them that pop up, but I, I think they definitely favor the old ones that have become popular. Yeah, because there are so many stories you can, you can play. And uh, also we have to uh, keep in mind the fact that they were not used that much. I mean, when the Vulture is back here, it's maybe it's second or third appearance. 
Uh, right. The only villains that we have seen very much in the first run are the Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus. That's true. I think the, the, the rest of them only appeared once, maybe twice, and that's about it. So uh, we have seen the, the Scorpion twice, Electro maybe just once. Uh, so there are plenty of guys that, uh, that, that we haven't seen that much and are very good potential for them. So that's why we will see them more and more. And there is no need to recreate more characters. And then when they do create characters like Kingpin and Chakra and Rhino, they are all characters that stick around. Maybe they aren't A-list characters except for Kingpin, but it's not like they disappeared. They're definitely uh, part of the Spider-Man pantheon now. I I must say that even though the Shocker has a cool costume, I wouldn't put him in the B-list. I would rather put him in the C-list. Yeah, that's probably true. that's, that's, That's just me, maybe. Yeah. Okay, we can now dive into our next part of our episode where we talk about the issues, and we're going to start with issue number 47, In the Hands of the Hunter. This is the return of Craven, and Craven is a little upset because he thinks that he should get some of the big reward. So we, I, I mentioned uh, in the last episode that they kind of forgot about that uh, ten was it ten thousand or twenty thousand dollar reward? Twenty twenty thousand dollar reward that that yeah. uh, Norman Osborn issued to try and get rid of Spider Man. They just dropped it. It was there for one uh, one issue, and nobody talked about it ever again. It's not e- Norman didn't even cancel the 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 reward. It just they just dropped mm-hmm. it, and I guess Craven went after him in that issue and uh, wants to get some of the money. So he's trying to track down uh, the Green Goblin or and or try, he tries to track down uh, Norman Osborn but can't find him and this is kind of a comedic series of events of him busting into these places where Norman should be but he's just away. He finally tracks down Harry and tries to, to capture um, Harry and use him as ransom but Spider-Man intervenes and in the end Norman does show up and Craven does try to kill him but Spider-Man uh, manages to, to, to save Norman. Um, this was an interesting issue here because Norman comes back and he doesn't have any memory of being Green Goblin or anything like that. So he is very much a different character. Uh, this is definitely a continuation from the last time that we saw him in those issues, uh, 39 and 40. Uh, I think the, the the fact that we have Norman not being the Green Goblin really brings tension to every story in which we see him. Because you, we don't know, we, we couldn't know at the time. Uh, and I tried to read that in retrospect, not knowing what course I've read afterwards, but you're always like, oh, is the shock going to turn him back into his Green Goblin persona? Is it going to trigger something? Because, and is the only guy who knows Spider-Man's secret identity. So that gives him something very, very special yeah. at the time uh, and still today. That's the extra tension that the book is, uh, is, is giving. I think that the Craven plot, uh, especially the, the first two pages, is a bit overcomplicated because in the first place, it was Norman who was approaching the guys with the money thing, but saying he was working on behalf of the Green Goblin. So that was exactly 
originally a bit complicated before, but we, at the time we didn't know that Norman was the Greek goblin, so that could have worked. But now, I mean, those first three pages with the recap of that, which is, by the way, a retcon, wow. <laughs> right, yeah, because they're, they're saying that it was the Green Goblin who issued the reward, not Norman. Yeah, and Norman was the, 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 the gopher. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, so it was the in-between guy. So that's the reason why he goes back to Norman, not knowing that Norman is a Green Goblin, but he has forgotten. So that makes it very, very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Two pages, right. so... so, so one of the rare times where you, there is such a tight continuity aspect uh, so early in the in the 60s and uh, um, I, as as I told you when uh, before the recording I, I was reading uh, Spider-Man Blue yesterday evening and I think that the idea they came up with uh, and they, they got rid of that and they just used the, the the smell of the aftershave of Peter that that Harry is wearing which brings Craven to the party and so on, actually was simpler and less convoluted than, than, than this part, I think. Mm, yeah. I think this, there's a, an incredible moment uh, here. It's, the, the, it's Flash uh, send-off party because he's leaving to join the army. And the extra tension also uh, this brings is the fact that the main villain is crushing the party where there are so many people and all the cast is there and it's a, a different vibe than just having two guys fighting on the rooftop you know it's like when the scorpion is attacking the bugle i think it's it, it gives an extra edge to the to the story and i think it really works especially because well you have this super nice moment when everybody's having fun and everybody's dancing and we have this uh, Gwen uh, showcase really, really looking like uh, Marilyn Monroe, in yep. my opinion. <laughs> Definitely. So it's really the, the the crushing of the party. I think very literally there. So that's uh, that's um, one of the good things of uh, of this episode. I wanted to mention Stan's dialogue and how he's kind of still over dialoguing at this point. If you go to page oh, yes. one ninety eight and one ninety nine, which is page four and five. There's just so much dialogue in these pages here. And especially like there's the there's the one panel on the bottom row of page 198 where Peter's talking on the phone to, to his aunt and Harry's there. And there's just so much dialogue there. It's like yeah. Peter, Harry's talking to Peter. Peter's talking on the phone, but Peter's also talking to Harry and like so much dialogue. And you flip the page and that top tier where where um, where Norman's talking to Harry and Peter is like, man, there's just so much going on. And then um, you, you flip the page and it's like, holy cow, you're just inundated with all of these, <laughs> these word balloons. Yeah. And the last thing the, the one that i want to point out the most is on page 203 which is page 9 in the story oh, yes. where uh, harry and peter are in their in harry's car and they're stopped at a light and they see gwen and then they have like this full conversation before gwen gets in the car and they're like stopped at the light <laughs> there's just so much dialogue mm. and that one panel in the middle where they are all in the car together stan puts so much dialogue in that one skinny tall panel that basically all of the art is obscured except for the small faces right in the middle. I can't believe how much dialogue is in that one box. Yeah, and, and especially <laughs> because the top is just 
those balloons. Yeah. I mean, uh, and Peter is thinking of the molten man and the scorpion. I mean, there's no need for that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> just like take out a few of those sentences and uh, give give it some room to breathe. Uh, and then that bottom panel where the gang enters the party, this is classic mm. Stan. Every single person in this panel, even the people that are in silhouette, even the people that are that we don't know, they all have a mm. line of dialogue in that one panel. Every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, they don't need that. But yeah, th that'll change yeah. as we go through uh, the rest of this volume and into the next volume. Yeah, yeah, but uh, the, the, this one is it's incredibly verbose. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, and I think maybe this issue would have worked better as a two-parter. Possibly to just uh, to to spread it out a little bit more. That's. Mm. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't know that I would really wanted it to be just because most of this is just Craven looking for for Norman. Uh, mm. There really isn't a whole lot to the plot of this story. They just they just um, Stan just burdens it with extra dialogue that's not necessary. But I don't think it. I don't know that it needs to be two issues long. Yeah, but the, yeah, maybe it's just the fact that there's too many too, too much dialogue and uh, that uh, seems to be overkill in, in most of the pages. Yeah, this issue is apparently very important to a lot of writers because uh, once again in uh, uh, Spider-Man Blue issue six. It's the. It doesn't take place in the same environment, but uh, uh, it's the, the the flash send of party, the moment when in Spider-Man Blue, uh, Peter and Gwen start dating. I think they imply also that they kind of they sleep together, they hook up um, after that party. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, which is something we have never. Well, there is maybe one panel much, much, much later, which implies that. There is this issue. Uh, then we have, uh, I don't know if you've read uh, Spider-Man Secret Identity by Chip Starsky. No, I haven't. Uh, no, uh, uh, Spider-Man Life, Life Story. Oh, Life Story, yeah. Yes, yes, I have read that, yeah. So the first issue also takes place in that send-off party. It's right. a different environment, but it's also at the same time, but it ties that and uh, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 39. So that's also one of the, 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 the key moments. Uh, and of course, we have also the, the, the very funny Deadpool 11 by Joey Kelly and Pete Woods, where Deadpool and companion uh, are, you know, the, the blind lady who's with him uh, at the time, go back in time to fix the continuum and it ties with the character that was there at the time called Weasel. And Pete Woods did a great job trying to mimic the style and the, the look and feel of, of the time. And Deadpool replaces Peter in the issue. And uh, <laughs> Al, so the, 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 the blind lady, uh, replaces Aunt May, making a lot of goofy comments and weird, saying weird things about Mary Jane being completely goofy and so on. Yeah. So it's a very funny issue. Uh, and it also gets some of the, the art of that very issue mixed with more modern art done by Pete Woods. So it's well worth uh, giving a look at it because it's it's funny. I'm not that much of a Deadpool fan, but really it's um, uh, it's a funny issue. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, I'm not a huge Deadpool fan either, so I, I have never heard that. But I I definitely want to check that out if it ties into this issue. That's very funny. Yeah. Well, why don't we keep on going over to issue number yeah. 48 now? Yes, for uh, issue 48 called The Wings of the Vulture. So the, the, the idea of this story is that uh, in the first place, Stanley thought that Tombs, the, so the original vulture, was too old looking. 
So he's in his cell and he's apparently dying. So there is this cellmate of his called Blackie Drago, who was his companion or a very good friend with him so that he would reveal where his costume is hidden in order to, to, take, his, to take his place, escape and take his place and, and become the, the new vulture, um, which is what happens. And as this uh, unfolds, he starts committing a series of bank robberies and, uh, and crimes. So obviously Spider-Man goes after him, but he's suffering from some sort of cold or flu and is very weakened from that, which leads to uh, a fight in which uh, one is very, very weak and gets defeated in the end with a, um, a final panel when uh, uh, Spidey lays down uh, on a, a roof and um, just with the snow protecting him and possibly having uh, saved him from uh, uh, a little fall from the, from the, the stroke he received from the, from the vulture. The back half of this issue is almost entirely a fight between Spider-Man and Vulture. And you can see that Romita is definitely starting to do his shift. Almost all of these pages are exclusively three or four panels, uh, giving mm. a lot of room to breathe. And what I like about this fight scene is that it takes place in the sky. Now, Peter Parker usually is swinging through the city and we get a lot of these mm. kind of, um, you know, aerial view shots but but now it's taking place above the even the skyscrapers because vultures flying high and so we get a lot of really cool shots and uh, and Ramita gets to show off his perspective skills uh so i like that i think that was kind of neat and, and i also really liked the pacing of this story because in the only 10 pages basically 10 maybe 12 pages here um Ramita introduces the concept of Blackie. He he, you know, immediately turns on Vulture, so we instantly get to know what kind of character Blackie is. He is a man of no loyalty and no morals, and he learns how to use the wings. And he commits like a dozen crimes, all in twelve pages. And I didn't think that it was a rushed pace job at all. I thought it was paced really, really, really well, leaving room for a dynamic yeah. fight at the end. Yeah, and the fact it's very dynamic because of the way the the he draws the vultures wings, uh, I think the, 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 it gives a, a great sense and a great visuals uh, in the pages. Uh, I, I really can't remember if Ditko drew the, drew the vulture like that, but uh, really that's extra dynamic. And, um, and also I really like the, the helmet that he's wearing. It changes also the look and feel and the design of the, of the vulture. So um, really enjoyed it. There's not much to it, a lot of action, but the action is great. So I really like uh, page 19 uh, when uh, Spidey is about to fall and the center three panels, well, you know, getting closer when the camera is getting closer and closer to, uh, to Spidey. That's nice. That's great Romita stuff. Yeah, it is nice. Very cinematic. Uh, and then the very last panel where he falls onto the roof and you see Spider-Man's broken body. And because it's snowing, it's all mm. it's all covered in snow. It's all white. The panel's mostly white. So you get a hint of the perspective in the background where you see the other buildings over the edge. But the focus yeah. is clearly on Spider-Man. And like the camera is pulled back a little bit so you can see his full limp body there. And it really, really stands out against the snow. And so does the to be continued. I really like the way they end. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you also met, you mentioned the helmet. Um, yeah. This helmet is part of the design that they use on the Spider-Man uh, cartoon, sh- uh, cartoon series. They decided to use the Blackie Drago uh, design. They don't really talk about the identity of the Vulture in the cartoon at all, but they use this design. Which I find really neat, really. Yeah. Um, as far as the, the, there's not a whole lot to do with Gwen Stacy and the gang in this issue. Um, I was quite surprised that they, because they were, they were so prominently featured in the last issue, but they only get really get one scene, uh, right, what is it, page 222 uh, in the epic collection, it's page seven in the story, where they, Peter just checks in a, in school for a little bit. Um, and that's really kind of it. There's not, uh, yeah. there's not, they don't carry on the soap opera from last time like they did in the last issue. Well, that's going to change because the following issue is very much into that. So that's a good uh, that's a good mix and a good balance. Yeah. So well, why don't we go on to the next issue here, the last part of this little story here, uh, issue number 49. It's called From the Depths of Defeat. And this one's, you can see on the cover, starring Vulture and Craven. Uh, this is something a little different because other than the Sinister Six, we don't usually get supervillain team-ups here. And it's not mm. really a team-up. It's kind of a battle between Vulture and Craven because Craven sees on TV that Vulture has defeated Spider-Man and being the egomaniac he is, he says, well, if he defeated Spider-Man, then I need to defeat that guy. <laughs> so he goes mm. after the new Vulture. And there's sort of a, a funny series of events where Peter is not really, or Spider-Man is not really in this issue much at all, because Peter's trapped in his bed under the covers in his Spider-Man costume because he, he's trying to make people think he's sick, which he is, um, and and mm. he can't get out from under his covers to change out of his Spider-Man costume because people keep on kind of che- checking in on him and coming in. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. And there's a great scene where Gwen and and uh, MJ come to the apartment and they like start to try to have a party <laughs> right in the middle of their living room while Peter's trying to rest. Um, so some nice character moments here. Uh, it was good to see see that that balance. And then at the end, of course, Spider Man sneaks away and is able to uh, take down both of these characters, sort of. Um, and there's one page where he rips out the the mechanism that Craven has installed in his lion outfit so that the eyes of his lion mm. vest shoot laser beams. I just think it looks like his nipples are shooting laser beams. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that, that's, that's a weird weapon. It is a weird weapon. <laughs> and it's uncharacteristic, I think, of Craven to rely on a weapon like that. Usually he's not about technology, but... No, he would be using potions or darts or yeah. things like that. Uh, that would make more sense. Um, and actually, it's Craven who takes out the, the Vulture, and that's pity. But it's kind of indirectly. I mean, he's aiming for Spider-Man, and Spider-Man leaps out of the yeah, way, and then the true. Blast takes out Vulture. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not an honorable defeat. <laughs> Um, one funny thing, page 248, um, I, I've read that in the beginning, Stanley didn't want Romita to draw Spidey too muscular or too, you know, too good looking and so on and so forth. And on the, the, the that final panel, look at the six pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's built, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely, I think that the, the, the specifications were out of the door at that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, overall, this three-parter was okay. Uh, it was it was nice to just get some some new villains like Blackie Drago and and seeing the villains fight each other. Um, but overall, it's not one of the highlights I think of this volume. 
for me at least, there's definitely better stuff. How can you compare yeah, to the, the Green Goblin stuff and the Kingpin stuff that's coming up? Yeah, it's more of a not villain of the month, but uh, it, it's traditional fights. Yeah. Uh, and here, especially, I think that the, the romance moment and the, 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 the things that take place in between the fight scene may be more interesting than the fight scenes uh, themselves, which would not be the case when we are talking about the Kingpin right. or when we were talking about the, the Green Goblin earlier. Yeah, for sure. Or the lizards. All the lizards. Oh, yeah, the lizard stuff was really good too. Yeah, there's so much mm. great. And I mean, and this stuff isn't bad. Like, it's still a, a good, entertaining story, but compared to the other stuff in this book, it just doesn't, uh, doesn't hold up as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So issue 50 called Spider-Man No More. So the, the issue starts with Spidey uh, stopping uh, bank robbers, but yet uh, still being feared by the people he just saved. And then it goes on with Aunt May being sick uh, again. And, uh, and then because of, uh, of one of those lectures that uh, JJJ often give on TV, well, he decides to call it quit and to ditch his costume in, a, in the trash and, and give up being Spider-Man. And the rest of this issue is really Peter enjoying his life as not being Spider-Man and being more himself, giving up uh, some things like Working for the for the bugle, deciding to be more uh, open and more yeah maybe uh, hitting a bit on on Gwen, uh, enjoying the life and yet obviously towards the end of the issue something reminds reminds him of his responsibility and his powers and the connection between the two of them, and so he gets back being being Spider Man and it's obviously a fantastic issue. Because it's, um, I think it's a great character development for Peter compared to the uh, when we had in Volume Two, we had this issue when he was when he gave up being Spider-Man once, but it felt like he, he was obliged to, or he, he, because he was he, he basically because he was afraid. But here it feels like he, he, he wants to live his life and he wants to not gets the burden of being Spider-Man anymore. And, uh, and he truly enjoys it. Well, he feels, and obviously in the end, he feels that he has to go back being Spider-Man because of the responsibility. But uh, it really feels like he wouldn't mind not being a superhero uh, anymore. Yeah, I feel like this is an actual ongoing theme for Peter that he, you know, he really wouldn't like to be a superhero. It's just kind of uh, this is it was thrown into him and thrown thrown upon him. And this is who he is and what he has to do. There's the one scene on page 15 on page 272 in the epic collection where some people are getting mugged on a rooftop or a security guard is getting robbed or something. And he can't help but help them. He has to spring to action. It's like something is in him calling him to do that and that's who spider-man is he he doesn't really you know he doesn't want to be spider-man but he is spider-man and he can't help it what i really enjoy about this issue uh, also is that because he quits well the, the the mob is getting organized and uh, uh doing more hits on banks and stuff so uh, it really feels like there are consequences to that because there are not so many human uh, heroes at the time. I mean, basically, you have Daredevil and Spider-Man, and that's about it. So that means that if someone like Spidey is not there 
to prevent those kind of robberies and uh, mean stuff happening, well, they would have uh, uh, the, its open bar for them. Uh, and that's what happens. Uh, so clearly you see that even though the, the, the event of the, the, the security guard that reminds him of Uncle Ben uh, triggers the fact that he has to go back. I, I think that eventually he would have been felt obliged to, to, to come back because of his sense of responsibility yeah. and because no one no one else is doing it. It's because true. the Fantastic Four are not uh, the, the, the Fantastic Four or the Avengers are not going to stop a couple of goons attacking the bank. This issue also, I think, features the origin retold, possibly for the first time. I can't yes. remember. Yeah, it, I'm surprised. If you read like those early Fantastic Four issues, they retell the origin all the time. Uh, but but we haven't really had a retelling of Spider-Man's origin story in Amazing Fantasy number 15 for forever. Like this is to have a 50 issue gap where they don't tell that story is odd for the 60s because, you know, they didn't reprint things all that much and you couldn't find back issues as easily. And usually they did this kind of thing on a regular basis. Yeah, it's retold in uh, Missing Spider-Man 1, but that's it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, two issues in a row and then no more for 50 issues. But it's great to have that for an issue, a landmark issue like number 50. Yeah, makes totally makes sense. And uh, it's not yet the time when you would get double-sized issues and uh, stuff like that for, for, for key moments like that. Uh, but at least it's a memorable issue there. Right. And the first appearance of the Kingpin, hey? Uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty great to see him come in. Um, oh, I mentioned in the last episode that... Uh, Rhino was the only Ramita character to make it into the cartoon, but Kingpin's there too. So I forgot about mm. about the Kingpin. You you, you see that uh, in this issue, the, the Kingpin you see is not yet fully established visually, and but that changes completely in the in the next issue. And you from now on, the, the Kingpin you see is the the Kingpin we we have always seen. Uh, his face is slightly different. Uh, his look and feel is not yet uh, yet there, uh, but definitely you get the feeling that this guy is not to be. You have to take him for for, for serious, and I, I like the 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 play that Foswell is trying to make. So we finally see that plot also moving on because we have we have seen him as a kind of shady character. You don't know where if he's really uh, trying to be part of the, the working with the police, working at the bugle, being having a different uh, persona and so on. And now he's making uh, his play. So he wants in uh, with the kingpin and uh, he wants to go back to being uh, in the crime business. And um, that's interesting also. Does he want to or is he kind of trying to go undercover for a story? Oh, that's a, that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that they ever really explicitly say, but I, especially with the what happens, well, maybe we'll talk about it in the, in the coming issue here because uh, some stuff happens with Foswell mm. that we'll need to, to discuss. Um, so let's, let's circle back to that one in a little bit. Mm. Uh, I think we were talking in the previous episode, we were talking about Spider-Man Blue. Yes. I, and I think that page 13 really ties into it. You know, the scene when uh, Pete is... Uh, is with Gwen, right? And they're both on the bike. Yeah, there's the bike scene. Mm. Uh, and this is the first time we get Gwen's views on Peter, where she has just that one little thought balloon that says, oh, you lovable blind goof, can't you see that I do? Uh, in terms mm. of I do mean that you were missed at the party or whatever. Like she does 
have feelings for Peter, which they haven't, we haven't had those words from her mouth yet. Uh, so that's a new revelation in this issue. Okay, I think we can move on to issue number 51 in the clutches of the kingpin. Great splash page here, introducing mm. this character who we met in the last issue. But like this is who the kingpin is. He rules the city with his fist and nothing will get in his way. He thinks he's defeated uh, Spider-Man. And we find out his plan here. He's going to uh, take control of all of the mobs in New York so that he is literally the kingpin of crime. And, uh, of course, this is something like this is what he's all about forever uh, in the comics. This is his thing. And so to have it established like this right away to come on the scene already in charge of everybody is quite remarkable. Like he's been behind the scenes all this time and now he's just here and he's here to stay. And so Spider-Man throughout this issue gets hints of something happening, something brewing in the underground and is trying to find some clues. He gets the name Kingpin, but doesn't know what that means. Um, Foswell is working with him and, uh, oh, sorry, working with the Kingpin uh, and they they kidnap Jonah and bring, uh, bring him to the Kingpin. And this is all set up for the next issue where uh, the two of them, Spidey and Jonah, get placed in a death trap and have to have to escape. Uh, there is a lot to love about this issue. I think the Kingpin's first appearance here, his first full appearance is just fantastic. He is such a commanding mm. presence visually and the way Stan dialogues him is really great. Um, and then the twist at the end of this issue where we find out that Kingpin can actually hold his own against Spider-Man 2. Like this is, it's, it's quite wild. It's a really uh, great introduction to a villain. Yeah, because the, 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 the one of the things you, you would imagine is that uh, with this uh, build, it wouldn't be uh, so much of a, of a foe. And you already see that from page eight when he, he takes a, a guy and uh, fights him and uh, uh, gets rid of him very easily. You see that he's quite the for formidable character already, but then, yes, at the end of the issue, you see that uh, he's completely capable of uh, fighting Spider-Man and uh, getting the best out of him. Yeah, And he has this amazing design. I, mean, I really love the way that uh, Romita established his look and feel. Uh, you know, because he's very well dressed, uh, he's using this cane, he has tricks in his tie or something that he has around his neck. So not only is he uh, quite a powerful character, but also he's a very clever one. And you get that from his first full appearance. That's, uh, that's neat, I think. It's really good. It's a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant character that will be so important, not with just Spider-Man, but with Daredevil and with Punishers. Like, I can't believe that this character, um, you know, starts starts so well established and well thought out. It's it's really great. And I love the interaction between him and Jonah as well. And just when he's when Jonah is blindfolded throughout half of this issue and trying to figure out what's going on, uh, it's there's just a, a lot to love with the way that this issue is written. Um, oh, and mm -hmm. we also get, I think, the first appearance, although he's not named, of Robbie Robertson on yeah. page 287. Mm. There has been a black guy working at the Bugle for the last, like even the, the last several Ditko issues. Ditko yes. drew a black guy kind of just in the background and it stands out because most of the time these comics are just completely 
full of white guys. Like there's usually mm. no black guys in there. So when when they do draw one, uh, it's noticeable. And so I noticed that in the last several Ditko issues that there was just mm-hmm. a black guy at the bugle. And now he's sitting right here beside Jonah in his office. And I think it's in the next issue that they're actually going to name him and say what his title is. Yes, it's in the, in the, the, the next issue. Yeah. And it feels like they have finally established uh, hair color for Ned. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> it looks like they're going to actually develop him a little bit more as well because he is starting to get into the into the action following leads for crime stories, which were usually Foswell's. But with Foswell gone missing because he's with the Kingpin, uh, somebody's got to follow up on the crime story uh, leads. And I guess that's going to be Ned leads. Mm. We only see the, 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 the girls uh, and Harry for a couple of panels uh, here compared to other issues, uh, which means that uh, the focus is clearly not on them. But yet, uh, we see that MJ has clearly seen that uh, Gwen has taken an interest for Peter uh, and she's starting to, to, to have those little jokes, you know, uh, in window kind of things uh, yeah. about it. And it gives more depth to the to the character. So she's not only this uh, uh, crazy dancing girl. She's she's there's more than meets the eye. Except I think that she still is. She's still written as if she's just carefree, and mm. it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. She is her. You know, she just does her own thing and such. She's all about the dancing and the parties and and whatnot. I feel like they need to go a little bit more uh, in depth with her character in order to make her a little bit. I think a little bit more likable. Right now, she's just a little too. Um, I don't know what the word is. I think that the fact that she she always said lots of fish in the sea is definitely is what defines her. Yeah, and uh, so she wouldn't get attached too much to people, and it wouldn't be until Tom Defalco wrote uh, retconned everything about her and yeah, explaining that she history. knew all. Yeah, uh, explaining that she knew all the time that Peter was Spider Man and the family aspects and so on and so forth. That you would see, you, you could see her in a different light and read those stories with that in mind, with that retcon in mind, would give her a different spin. But yes, yeah, she's, she's not that much of a likable character at the time. Yeah. Okay, moving on to issue number 52. Yeah, so issue 52, which is the last amazing Spider Man issue of the volume called To Die a Hero. So uh, it starts with the, with a classic Spider-Man trope, uh, Spider-Man and, uh, and, uh, and, and Jonah being trapped together. Uh, we will see that happening very frequently, and it's always nice to see. So they are, they're, they're, they are trapped together in a, in a room which gets filled with, with water, so um, that's a trap for them to die. And uh, which is kind of silly in the first place, but let's not get into that. So obviously, they managed, uh, Spidey managed uh, to manages to find a way to to have them escape and uh, confront uh, for the second time the the, the kingpin. Uh, this time with a with a better ending for the, for him. But as the kingpin uh, escapes, his goons are still there and in the confusion of everybody running around and so on and so forth, Fred Foswell takes a bullet that was aimed for Jonah and dies as a hero, which gives the, the, the reason behind the title that, uh, that that we have for this issue. Spidey getting a win in the end, but uh, 
with some important cloths and something that um, uh, that is new because uh, first of all was was a very well established character. So it's one of the rare times when we see uh, a very well established character dying and having a very meaningful death. I would say. Uh, I was surprised at this actually. Um, I don't. I've never read these this two part Kingspin story, and I knew that Foswell died somewhere along the line, and I wasn't. I didn't know that it was under these circumstances. So this was. It was a nice story to read in that aspect, and and yeah, surprising because this is a character that we thought had been redeemed. And then turns to be a bad guy, and then ends up redeeming himself in the end again. Which may this is the reason why I think that he was not really a bad guy with the kingpin here in the first place, because he never really turned. The fact that he was still um, willing to 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 protect Jonah in the end tells you he was never really a bad guy um, ever since he reformed. And I kind of think he was just trying to get into the kingpin's. Um, you, you know, into, into his circles in order to get the story or get some information and such. Then it just kind of went um, not the way he planned. Um, I also think that it's odd that they chose to kill him off because he'd been building up this whole following Peter around and like putting the pieces together. And even like the issue before this, he says, oh, or in issue 50, he thinks to himself, oh, Peter... Um, quits being a photographer the same time that Spider-Man quits being Spider-Man. I wonder if that's a coincidence or something. Like, he's close to f actually figuring it out, but then all of that just gets pushed to the side because they decide to kill off his character here. Yeah, it could have been an, an interesting uh, subplot to, 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 to keep on the, on the book, uh, even though there was already something in that vein a few before, you know, the one where, where Peter uh, finds out that Foswell is following him and he plays right. this uh, comedy act. Uh, but that's what I mean. The, the, he has this whole subplot that's been going on for yeah. issues and it was still going on. Like even, yeah. even that trick that Spider-Man did in that issue didn't stop Foswell from thinking about it because he still kept on thinking about it even as as recent as issue number 50 and then yeah they just write it all off i think it would have been great to to have him stick around and follow him and get closer and closer and eventually figure it out yeah could have been a very interesting character development for sure maybe in a different timeline in the spider-verse that happens yeah <laughs> uh in this issue flash is back right like he was gone for two issues <laughs> <laughs> that war, you know, they they yeah, they're very very um, efficient with their wars. They yeah, can do them in two yeah. months. Yeah, I was really surprised to, uh, you know, he, it's not really explained where he's going and what's happening for him. He just goes back and forth um, regularly in the book. They do name it though in this issue. They do specifically say. He says on page thirteen, he yeah. says, "You you must have heard the Viet Cong wanted to sue for peace as soon as they found out I was there." Mm. So yeah, he was definitely overseas in Vietnam. Yeah, but um, you know when you when you uh, when you think of the time time frame of an issue and the time roughly, it really feels well like maybe it was gone like for two weeks. Yeah, especially when you, you read know, it in the collection like time that. Wise, yeah. yeah, yeah, comic book time-wise, it would have been gone like two weeks. Obviously, publishing time-wise, it doesn't it works a bit, but at the pacing, you're supposed to to the, the time takes place in the in comic book time. It, it, it's a bit weird. Um, yeah, to have him back 
but I, I don't really know how the system works. So maybe it was, <laughs> it makes sense at the time. But this is a big turning point for Flash because he has left his kind of high school bully days behind him. And mm. now, especially on the same page on 13, there is the scene where Gwen says, as soon as Pete gets here, I'll arrange the zingiest wingding in town. And and Flash says, Parker, you got to be kidding. He can empty a room just by entering it. And Harry says, come on, Flash, Pete's a good egg and you know it. And that right there is the turning point, I think, for Flash, because mm. now his friends all like Peter and he's going to like, he kind of likes Peter too. And he's not going to put up his, his, uh, you know, his front about that anymore. Yeah. So that really gives a different, I mean, really, once again, it's just been uh, a year since, uh, a bit more than a year since uh, Romita took, uh, took over the book. Yeah. And look how different it is. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's completely another character, another set of characters, you know, the, the around him, uh, another vibe. Everything is completely changed. And, uh, well, some like the, the Ditko stuff better, but for me, that's my Spider-Man right now. Yeah, I can't imagine what people were thinking uh, when they were reading this. And they're like, man, all of these characters are so acting out of character. This is not my Spider-Man anymore. Were people actually mm. thinking that or were people loving this and really embracing the change? I have no idea. I have to maybe read the lettered pages to, to find that out. Uh, the, 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 the thing is that the, the saints were definitely picking up. Yes, that's uh, true. And uh, that, uh, so that gives, uh, gives you an idea because at the time, Fantastic Four was the top selling book uh, at Marvel. And with Romita re arriving on the book, then the Saints picked up and would lead to the fact that Amazing Spider-Man would become the, 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 the best-selling book at Marvel. So definitely the, the, the feeling and the vibe of the book made it work very well, yeah. uh, sales-wise. The last three issues, uh, we had uh, Mikey Dimio, Mike Esposito being back on the, on, on the book. And yet, it doesn't. It's completely different from the the, the previous issues where it, where it was working. Uh, I think it you hardly see the difference. And it may, maybe the, the Romita stencils were very tight or something like that. But it really enhances the the, the Romita art, in my opinion, especially in this. In this uh, in this issue, which is really really great looking, so the the, the combo, the the Romita Esposito combo works really well in this issue. I think so too. I don't think I like it as much as Romita inking himself, but it still does a good job. Actually, did Demio do issue fifty as well? Yes. Okay. Actually, then I take it back because that I really really liked the look of that issue, especially that splash page with uh with the Spider Man costume in the trash like that. Oh, the only person that can do a better, moodier New York City is Will Eisner. Mm. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Okay, so Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 4, King Size Special, The Web and the Flame. This is a big issue because there are no reprints. It says right on the cover, not a single reprint. And they tease us as to who the artist is in this issue here. Right at the very beginning, they say... Uh, what does this box say? Mystery lovers, we've got a goofy new treat for you. We're telling, uh, all we're telling is that our little leader, Stan the Man Lee, scripted this yarn. Mickey, ever delightful Demio, did the yanking. And adorable Jerry Feldman did the lov lovable lettering. But we're keeping the penciler's identity a secret till the end. Why they do that, I have no idea, but they do. 
Uh, and we yeah. find out, should we spoil it now for them? We find out at the very end of this issue that it is Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, who does the penciling. And Larry is an interesting guy because he did a lot of writing for Marvel. And in the early, in the 50s and such, he did do a lot of the penciling, penciling his own work and such. But once the Marvel age ushered in, he really didn't do much penciling at all. He, cr- he co-created uh, he co-created Iron Man, though. Yes, but f- f- through the writing, he did. Yes. Yeah, he did writing for you know Thor and Ant Man and Iron Man and such, but he never did penciling. So to have him do this whole annual and he and he does the next annual as well, uh, it's actually kind of a rare mm-hmm. thing at this time. And then eventually he'll take over the Spider Man newspaper comic strip. And uh, which he drew up until very recently um, when they canceled the strip. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think he was still working on it. Yes. I have uh, two interviews with Larry Lieber that I did. Uh, and one of, them, we, one of them, we talk about the Spider-Man newspaper comic strip. And he says that his run on Spider-Man was the longest consecutive run as a Spider-Man artist in Spider-Man history. He, he was a Spider-Man yeah. artist longer than anybody. I mean, he was only doing, you know, the three panels at a time daily, which it's so it's not the equivalent of a monthly book, but still he was associated with the character for the longest unbroken streak, which is pretty, uh, pretty good brag there, I think. <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh, okay, so this issue here is one big story with a bunch of backup features, where the Spider-Man, where Spider-Man and Human Torch get suckered into being uh, part of a movie. And it turns out that the movie is just a, an elaborate plot by Mysterio and the wizard in order to try and take down the two villains, pit them against each other so that they will kill each other. And of course, that doesn't end up working. They team up in the end and take down the villains. And that is kind of the whole issue. It's actually eh, not that great of an issue, not that great of a story. Oh, it's super bad. <laughs> I was being I nice. <laughs> no, I, you know, you're reading this great Kingpin story and suddenly you have this thing which is 40 page, pages long and feels like a, a 62 uh, Strange Tales uh, <laughs> yeah. reject. Yep, right. <sighs> I think so. That's what it is. Yeah, Wizard, of course, is a Spider-Man. Or sorry, the Wizard is a Human Torch villain from the old Strange Tales days, teaming up with uh, Mysterio, a Spider-Man villain. So we have uh, villains com- combining to fight their respective heroes. And it's just one kind of, it's one battle after the other. And none of them have any sort of real consequence. They're all kind of goofy. And Larry, he's a pretty good artist, but he has, um, he's just a little stiff. And I think that mm. I think that Demio actually picks up a lot of the slack because a lot of the drawings turn out to be very Romita-ish. And I think mm. that's because Mickey Demio is trying to add a little bit of continuity to to Larry Lieber's pencils. Because if you look at Larry's work from from the 50s, I mean, I know there's a lot of growth that can happen between the 1950s and now, but he wasn't drawing a whole lot. And if you look at his style in the 60s, it is very, very different than what we see here. Uh, it's it's quite strange, especially when he's inking himself. Um, he's very, very unique and stylized in his approach to drawing. And I think that Demio does a lot to smooth over a lot of that. I'm wondering if sometimes Romita is not doing a few panels here and there. Because, yeah. you know, when you look at page 338, and you see that uh, the, that first panel on the left part of the page, 
that guy at the bottom and so on, it looks more Romita-ish. It looks like a Romita panel to me, uh, even though it's not finalized and it doesn't look like Romita. Just with the staging, you mean? With the, the up-close yeah. person in the foreground and stuff? Yeah, yeah that is something yeah, that Romita yeah, would do. Yeah. I, I think there are a few pages where it looks like uh, Romita may have uh, done a few faces, like you would do in other books, you know, like art corrections, things like that. Right, yeah, that's possible. And the other thing is that it's possible that Larry would swipe from other people as well, because mm. I think he did that here and there. Yeah, yeah. He, he used a lot of reference in his drawings. If you listen to the interview that I do with him, he actually talks a lot about how he, you know, he, he, was, he, he never looked at himself as a good artist. He, he struggled a lot with drawing. He was really slow uh, to make it look right. And so he used a ton of reference, and, uh, which is good, and, um, and, you know, did his best. But I think you can tell that he's definitely a little on the weaker side. Yeah, and... Um... The last panel with Peter falling asleep at the end there, that totally looks like definitely Romita. Romita. Yep. Yeah, definitely Romita to me as well. So, I mean, when you compare with the, the, the pages, with the, the, the kind of monster that we see, uh, I mean, there's a, it really feels like it's two different artists. Yeah, the, the monster is kind of Kirby-ish in its design mm. with those teeth and such. And Very shifty also. Yep, yep, definitely. Very true. Yeah, overall, it's too bad that it's such a big part of this, this epic collection because it has so many pages because it's not that great. And then you flip the page and we have the, the uh, a two-page spread of the coffee bean barn, also drawn by Larry. But man, these drawings look like Ramita, like the faces and such. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, uh, the first time I read that, yeah. they, they were they were taken out of the, the annual and they were used in a, in a French magazine that I read when I was a kid. And I was 100% sure those those pages were drawn by Romita. Yeah, definitely. You'd think so. But it's apparently not. It's apparently all Larry. Mm. But this is a nice splash page. I think this is this the first time the coffee bean barn is named? Could be, could be. And that is, there are very funny uh, things in the background and the things which are written, uh, Fu Manchu for mayor and yeah. so on, free espresso for two or 50 cents rent or for the couple and so on. I mean, this is really <laughs> Stanley having fun. Totally. And it works very well, I think. Um, and then the next page. I, I love these bonus pages. Yes. Yeah, it's great. The, the, the next page with the, with, with the mask and the way the mask is working. The cartridges, the way you, the, the way the, the the web spinner is working, and so on and so forth. When I was a kid, I, was, I read that to death, really, because I, it was so such an eye-opening thing for me uh, to know how uh, why the the, the the spinning would be different. Uh, so it explained all that. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense at all. But uh, <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, this works so well. Yeah, it's this kind of thing. Like you tap it, tap it, uh, tap it once for a thin web line. You you hold it down for a thick ball of mush, and then you tap it briskly. Uh, what does it say? A series of brisk staccato taps releases multiple cables to make a, a net pattern. It's like, yeah, that it, uh, that kind of stuff is like it's never talked about in the comics at all. So it's kind of neat to see that. But you think about it, and it's like, hmm, I don't know how that works. Peter's definitely got a very good engineering background in order to come up with uh, his web shooters that do all of that. It also reminds me in the early days of Thor when they were trying to establish, he, he taps the, the hammer once to turn into Thor. He taps it twice to call thunder. He taps it three times to make a storm. Yeah. <laughs> and then you uh, turn the page and you get how his, uh, how his wall crawling ability works. Not really how it works, but just all of the cool things that he can do. 
Um, the, the real pleasure is reading the goofy caption boxes through all, all of this that Stan is putting in because he's got a good sense of humor as he as he goes through all of these things that Spider-Man can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on page 370, we have a, a pinup of Spider-Man holding up the rest of the Marvel Universe. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of funny because I and I wonder if yeah. it's like a, uh, a little commentary on the rising sales of Spider-Man. Um, I think some of the, this is drawn by Larry as well, but he's obviously kind of cutting and pasting the characters from other oh, yeah. books. <laughs> yeah, especially the Hulk. It really looks like a cut and paste. Yep. And the. Today you would call that bad photoshopping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. And I think he does the same thing for this splash page with the villains as well. I can't say for sure, but I'm yeah. pretty sure that they're kind of cut and paste also. Yeah, because I, I think that the, the Electro is a swipe of, is a Ditko swipe. Yeah, I think the Vulture is too. Oh no, the Vulture's uh, got the face mm. mask on, so maybe it's not. I don't know. Yeah, they look familiar. Yeah, but it looks weird. I mean, it looks like he has no neck. The Vulture is especially weird looking. Yeah, it's um, it's a weird angle. And Doc Ock is a swipe also. Oh, okay. Uh, and then you, you flip the page again, and we get a little inside view of Peter and Harry's apartment. And Peter has all of these dangerous chemicals on his desk. Um, it's probably a fire hazard or something just to leave things bubbling like that all the time. Mm. <laughs> he probably shouldn't. And I like that they have a cabinet in the middle of the floor, and it says, We're not sure, but we suspect this is where they store their ever-growing collection of Marvel comics. <laughs> As every good apartment should have. <laughs> mm. So yeah, these are and fun pages. Yep. Yeah, great page. And apparently they have no kitchen. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> well, no, there's one there's one side door. Um oh, I guess that's the door to Peter's room. Yeah. Um so I guess there's there's Harry's room is the far door on the wall. The middle door is probably a bathroom. Mm. And then Peter's room, but yeah, no kitchen. Poor guys, they have to eat out all the time at the coffee bean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Possibly, yes. So this is the page where we find out that Larry Lieber is the penciler. And he's, and it also says, we want to tell you one year in advance that our 1968 Spidey special will feature the long-awaited mysterious saga of Peter Parker's parents. So that's exciting. It'll be penciled by La Rupin Larry and inked by old Ring-a-Ding himself, Romita. So there we go. And then it says, see you then, Pussy Willow, which is, uh, of course, the running gag from, yes. Mary, from Aunt May. <laughs> mm. I said I was going to point that out, and there it is. Okay, any more comments about the annual? Um, just one thing. Uh, I, I didn't really like the lettering on the on the main book, on the main story. And I really feel like it changes in the bonus pages. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. So it's... Yeah, it's definitely somebody else uh, because of just the way, just the, um, the lettering itself is totally different. Yeah, and I, and there are so many bonds used in the, in the lettering of the annual that for me, it's, I really didn't like it. Um, so I, I'm not familiar even with the, the letterer's name because, um, well, I don't know what he did then, but for me, it was Sam Rosen or T.C. Mac working on, working on the time on those books. So yeah. it feels strange to have someone else. And it doesn't feel like a regular Marvel comics of the time anymore. It's really strange. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, definitely, definitely different. Okay, the last thing we have in this book is Not Brand Ech, number two, a story from number two. This is a uh, a parody comic that Marvel put out in the 60s that kind of made fun of their heroes. And as we'll see in this one, they make fun of the DC heroes as well. Um, 
Peter Pooper, the aging Peter Pooper, or sorry, the aging Spidey Man uh, versus Natman and Rotten. And this is drawn or written by Stanley, drawn by Marie Severin and inked by Frank Giacoya with letterer from letters by Al Kurzrock. And mm. this story is is just a funny story where um where Jonah hires Batman this Batman and Robin character to try and take out Spider-Man and so they have a little bit of a fight. And it's all goofy, it's fun, it's like four pages and such and it is a snapshot of the time. There are so many cultural references in here and um I actually did an episode of my podcast on this book. If you look for the very first mm. Not Brand Eck episode, uh, my co-hosts and I go through each one of these pages, each one of the panels, and try to pull out as many of the cultural references and explain them as we can. Because I think the key to understanding these stories is to understanding the era. And if you get the jokes they're trying to make, it makes these issues more enjoyable. Otherwise, you're like, what the heck am I reading? Yeah, that's how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, once again, it's really strange when you're not American and uh, uh, most of those jokes, you you, uh, you don't get them. Well, let uh, me tell you, I, I, most of these jokes I didn't get either. And I know I'm not American, but, okay. but I'm okay. North American and we have the same TV and stuff like that. And still, a lot of these mm. jokes I didn't understand. And I Googled a ton of stuff to find out why are they making this reference? Okay. What does this word mean? What does that word word mean? And it all, you know, it makes sense in sort of in their context. Uh, it, there are some funny gags in here when you understand what it actually is all about. <laughs> um, the, the, the thing that I enjoyed is that it's not a Batman parody, it's a Batman TV show parody. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was very popular at the time. That's the so only thing I got. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because you know, the, the the commissioner look looks like the actor who played the commissioner in the in the in the TV show, right? Am I am yep. I right about this? Yep, totally. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it pulls definitely some stuff from the comics as well, but it, it is for sure an Adam West parody. Um, I, I like at the very last panel as well, the Romita-looking Peter and, mm. and Gwen and Mary Jane. Uh, Marie Severin, I think, trying to do her best Romita. Yeah, works well. Uh, the, the, the Spidey costume in the trash also. That's right. To, to Spidey Shifty. Very That's good. Right. Very That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we need to spend a whole lot of time on this one. If you want a more in-depth conversation, mm. then I encourage you to listen to my Not Brand Eck episode, which you can find if you go to my website, epicmarvel.com, or sorry, epicmarvelpodcast.com, and click on the index link that's at the top of the page. You'll be able to find it. Uh, there are some bonus features in this book, a bunch of original art pages or photo stats of various pages from the issues collected here. Um, all courtesy, it says, of Scott Dunbeer, who works for IDW and is in charge of their artist edition line. And so he's mm. done um, artist edition, John Romita artist editions, where you get all of this art reprinted at its actual full size, like one-to-one. -one. It's quite remarkable. Um, and I have to say that the, the, so the first one was released a long time ago. There is a second one, uh, which covered the, the, the time of the um, Epic Collection 7, you know, the time when uh, Jerry Conway is writing the book. Yep. Uh, that, that's the one I've been lucky enough to, 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 to buy. Uh, but at, as we record this uh, next March, uh, they will release a, a, a much cheaper uh, edition, a smaller size also, of course, 
I think it's called an artisan edition or something like that. Artisan, yeah, uh, that's uh, right. So it's a smaller version of the, the, the artist edition uh, and would give you um, a great look at, at those uh, pages that uh, that we have here. And uh, you can see the, the great uh, look and feel and, uh, and the details and how different it is compared to the, 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 the original art we saw from, um, from Ditko in the previous edition. One of the pages here is a page of from annual number four by Larry Lieber. And there's a note at the bottom of it and says the big fault here with the entire story is that I can't read this writing very well, is that the villain could have been anyone. There's nothing in here that notes the mm. villain's talents. <laughs> so that's, that's a good point. And I don't know if that's Larry's fault for the way he laid it out or if that stands mm. fault for his plot or whatever. I don't know whose handwriting that is, who's writing that note, if it's Larry or if it's Stan. But yeah, they're right. It, leading up to the big reveal, there are absolutely no hints. I mean, you can kind of guess because it's a movie set that it's Mysterio, mm. but it yeah, it could have been anyone. I mean, Green Goblin created a movie studio for, yeah. for Spider-Man in that one early issue. <laughs> Um, I have a. Uh, th there is something that I find really surprising about the unused pencil art by John Romita. You know the the, the one which is supposedly page sixteen of Amazing uh, Spider-Man forty. Yeah. Um, it makes no sense for me. I've always seen that page and, say, and always found that uh, first of all, that page, that moment is earlier in the issue. It's page eleven, so it's not page sixteen at all in issue. 40. And when you look at the layout of the page and the way it's drawn, I mean, you can easily see that it's a, a, a different kind of Romita than the one we see in this issue. Right. Because the, 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 the art looks almost like uh, mid 70s, early 70s Romita and not mid 60s. You know, with the brush instead of the pen, uh, it's, uh, it's thicker while he's using a, a, a thin pen when, when he draws. Uh, and I was always wondering where, where this page is coming from. Because it could be from, for instance, uh, something which was rejected from the, the Spectacular Spider-Man magazine uh, that we will cover in the, the, in the, next, uh, um, in the next volume. The, you know, the one with the Green Goblin. So it could have been that because for me, it doesn't, it doesn't work at all. Uh, with the look and feel of Spider-Man at the time. But that page, that magazine was printed in a different ratio, right? It wasn't comic size, it was magazine size. Yes, yes. So, but yes, this page yes. is comic size. Yes. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe I'm over-reading it, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't really feel like one of the, I mean, next to, to the, uh, you can see the, on the opposite page, uh, the, the actual look and feel of the episode, uh, and it doesn't look the same at all. Right, and I think maybe that's because though it was that one's inked, that page is inked, so it is definitely Could different because be. the other one is just pencils. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it would fit. Maybe yeah. it was used for a flashback at some point or something. I don't know. Yeah, it would have made more sense for me. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> it, well, it's, yeah, no, it's fun to speculate on that kind of stuff for sure. Absolutely. Well, there we go. We finished this one, and uh, you know what? I don't think that I'm done reading John Romita's Spider-Man yet. I kind of want to go on to the next volume. So what do you say, Frank? Should we go on to volume four? Oh, definitely. No problem at all. <laughs> okay. So let's do that. <laughs> we'll be back next week with more Spider-Man talking about the fourth epic collection, which is called The Goblin Lives. 
Uh, check us out on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, just search for Epic Marvel Podcast. You can also search for Epic Collections on Facebook and join my Epic Collection group. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. As always, thank you, Frank, for being with us for this walk through Spider-Man. And uh, we'll be around. Uh, we'll see everybody next week. Bye, everyone. Take care.